Hello, my name is Tucker Johnson, and I am your host today as we experience NIMSY Live, where we talk about the latest and greatest in translation, localization, internationalization, culturalization, and all that fun stuff global companies need to delight their international customers, or at least not to piss them off too much. In this program, we invite guests who like to have fun and have some value to add for our audience of globalization professionals. I'm always eager to provide a platform to those with a good story or a good data set. So let us know if there are any topics you'd like covered or guests we should reach out to for future episodes. If you aren't already subscribed to or following Nimsy Insights, now's your chance. We are coming to you live today on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, whatever Twitter's called these days, and of course, LinkedIn, where most people check out this program. For those of you who are watching the recording, um, all of the recordings are archived on our YouTube channel, as well as uploaded as podcasts. You can search for NIMSY Live in the podcast platform, that whichever podcast platform you use, just search for NIMSY Live and you will see us there. Today, this is a double feature today. This is our second live stream of the day. I've got a really interesting topic, something that I really enjoy talking about myself, which is the intersection between user experience and localization. So I'm just going to jump right into it here today and give you the intro. So today we're going to be diving into the world of user experience and localization. Today's episode will cover the importance and benefits of merging UX and localization teams. We'll touch upon the need for training localizers in UX and vice versa, and discuss how quality of UX localization can significantly improve through clear communication. Thank you for joining us for this deep dive into creating universally engaging user experiences. Our guest today is Michal kessel Schittritz, which I'm hoping I'm pronouncing good enough. Yeah, it's good. Let's just yeah. say. Uh, she is a localization expert. Her language pair is English to Hebrew. She is a consultant and UX writer. Her course on user experience of localization experts brings localizers into the world of content design for incredible localized UX. When she's not evangelizing a loc and UX relationship, Michal works with tech companies to create clear, helpful messaging in English and in Hebrew. Welcome to Nimsy Live, Michal. Did I get everything? What did I leave out from that introduction? No, everything was perfect. Awesome. Well, th- thank you. As, as I mentioned, she um, this is a this is a topic that I really like talking about, and I, I've written about it. I published about it. Um, I've given workshops about it myself, and it's this intersection between user experience and localization. And I I find it a fascinating topic because at the heart of it, localization is user experience. It it's it's about reaching global customers in the way that they want to be reached. But um, I'm going to stop talking here and turn it over to you. Tell us, a little, well, first of all, I'm getting ahead of myself. Tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and why this is a interesting topic for you. Sure. So uh, first of all, thank you for having me yeah. here. Um, so what I do usually in my day-to-day, first of all, I'm a localizer and UX writer myself. So I both create uh, digital experience content, UX content, and localize it into Hebrew and into English from both languages. And then what I also do on my day today is I create content and like you said, evangelize and teach uh, both sides of the of this equation, teach them about the other side. So I teach localizers about UX, I teach digital product teams about localization so that they do have better communication and better knowledge and so that they are able to, I guess, better collaborate 
to create better digital experiences. I've said better like six times, but that's kind of the goal here. The goal here is to make things better. Um, and so that's what I do in very, very kind of broad terms, I guess. Interesting. And for those of you joining us on LinkedIn today, I, I, I will encourage you to go follow Michal on, on LinkedIn. Um, when I can, I'll, I'll post a link over in the comment section here, but she's, she's always talking about these interesting things. So if it's a topic that's interesting to you as well, worth a follow as well. And while I'm plugging for you here, um, let's go over to localization station. Tell us a little, what, what is localization station? Other well, than a cool name that I wish I had registered cool the domain for. <laughs> I've actually, I had a, a few kind of opened ones and I went into localization station thinking it would be more professional and businessy. Um, <laughs> but I did have a kind of casual terms also, but the localization station is a platform for everything UX and localization. And in my dreamscape and what my plans for the future is a place for both digital product companies and localizers to come to and get all the knowledge that they need to create digital experiences. And not just from me, but from other experts too. So getting knowledge from all of those kind of different facets of the, of the process, different facets of the experience, I guess. And, and being able to centralize all that in one place so that people can come and get their knowledge and be able to improve their own processes and be able to understand on their own how to do that better which I really felt was something that was missing from for the industry. And that's why I created it, but it is relatively new and I keep adding content all the time. Yeah. And yeah, I checked it out beforehand. You got some good resources there in the blog and everything. I encourage people to go check it out on their own time. Um, well, there's a community building aspect to this, the, to what you're doing is bringing together localization and user experience teams. And this is, this is speaking my language. I've been beating that drum for a while to anyone that wants to listen. Because, you know, we work with a lot of different client-side organizations here at NIMSI Insights and, you know, helping them do their thing and evaluate their programs and define their roadmap and all of that stuff. And one of the things that I just find tragic is the lack of, not even cooperation, but the lack of communication between the localization teams and the user experience teams. And, it, both sides are losing out on that because there's so many UX components involved in localization. But also what I've found is that a lot of times the user experience teams at these big, you know, these big, well-funded, very competent user experience teams are leaving out half of their global customers because they're only thinking about their English customers. Has that been your experience too? It's definitely been my experience, but also what has been my experience is that it doesn't happen on purpose. No, so it's no, not no, no, no. That... It's no bad intentions, right? It's no just... bad intentions. Yeah. But, but, but also not, even not from bad intentions, it's even not from lack of choice because companies, it's not a company say, oh, we really want to be able to create great experiences for those audiences, but we don't have the money. We don't have the time. It's not that. It's just a lot of the times they really think that they're creating great experiences for those, uh, for those audiences, because usually there's no research done on localized, uh, on localized uh, products and localized user experiences. And when there is research done, it's very, very little. And so they really don't know that the quality of the experience is bad. Um, and it is a little bit of kind of Anglo-centrism. Uh, the companies, a lot of the times, just assume that the experience is good, but they don't really ask the people who are using the experience and having that experience. Yeah. And I think 
being part of a market that is a lot of the times underutilized and not a lot of kind of funds being transferred because it's such a small market, I think it really emphasized that challenge for me yeah. because, um, because basically no experiences in Hebrew are good, unfortunately. <laughs> No, uh, I haven't, no. I haven't met much, let's say that were localized into well, Hebrew be, and that are good. Wow. Well, it's such a simple language for internationalization and localization to, no, I'm, I'm kidding. Of course. Um, oh, it is a simple language. It is. It really is, except for the gender issue, but it, it's not a hard language. And a lot of the challenges that come that, um, digital experiences have like space, for example, some languages are really long yeah. or have really complicated character sets. We don't have those challenges. But on the other hand, we do have other challenges. But you have the bi-directionality and, mostly, and uh, yeah. all of that stuff, which kind of just throws, I, it fascinates me because every once in a while, like I'll be doing in office hours with the client and you know, I'll be talking to people that have been in the industry for 10 years and they've just never managed uh, Hebrew or Arabic or anything like that. It's never come, come across their plate. And I always cherish, and I am no expert in right to left or bi-directionality or anything like that. But I always cherish those moments when I get to like break someone's bubble for the first time and like teach them about right to left because it just blows their minds. They're like, no, like everything has to be, everything has to be flipped. Yeah. Everything has to be, but I, but I also, I wanted to challenge the, this conception that user experience is about kind of the, the flipping of the graphics and the, you know, the, punctuation being in the wrong place and date formats and currency formats. But it's not about that. It's more about the, the, the actual experience, right? The cultural experience that yeah. you have. So let's uh, define user experience before we get into this too much. Define user experience for us. So I guess it depends on where you're coming from to define this. If you want to define the industry, the user experience industry, it's an industry that is meant to obviously deliver better experiences that serve the goals of those products, the goals of those companies and are adapted for the specific users that are using the product. And when you, when you talk about UX copy, a lot of the times it kind of frames the experience, frames the, the experience in the way that how the user actually experiences it, what okay. they feel when they use the product um, and what kind of emotions they come out of it with and how often they want to come back to it and how much they want to recommend it to others and all of those kind of more, I guess, emotional aspects of it. Yeah. And it's something that is really, really hard to pinpoint. It's really hard to define. It's it really is. hard for users to say, that's why I like this product, mm -hmm. but they do like it. They do prefer it to the competitor. Yeah, it, it's hard. Like we do um, global user experience studies for some clients here at Nimsy Insights. And it's like surveys and focus groups where you're like sitting down and asking them these random questions. They're not random. They're very well defined, but it's like, you're asking these questions that have nothing to do with localization, nothing to do with you. But what you're doing is trying to see what their answers are so that you can kind of objectify this objective, right? Because like yeah, you said, people, exactly. don't, people don't understand why they like a product or why they don't like a product. Sometimes they just understand that this doesn't feel right. Yeah. And there is a science to it. Oh, sure. But it's, it, it is really hard to define. Yeah. And, and that I think what is what makes uh, UX, localized UX, UX uh, user experiences so hard to pinpoint and so hard to do well, because that cultural aspect, that emotional aspect is almost impossible to do if you're not working with someone who understands UX because there is a science to it yeah. and also understands that culture. And those, that combination of things is really lacking in the industry. Well, and this is why- There's not enough of those people. Yeah, this is why 
I think there's so much benefit to be had from UX teams talking to localization teams because the yeah. localization teams typically understand different cultures. But they might not understand that science that you referred to about user experience, but the UX teams, they understand that science. So when they work together, it's a really powerful stuff can happen. Um, Definitely. But Definitely. It's, it's, we don't have a long history and there's going to be someone in the comments that says I've been doing this for 10 years. Okay. Most people don't have a long history of this collaboration. So what I find when working with clients that are interested in doing this is it's very much a learning process, you know, kind of, you know, putting on the training wheels, learning how to pedal, taking the training wheels off. Um, it's not comfortable and it's not something where there's clearly defined industry standard KPIs to track, right? And that's kind of the hard part because localization teams, I know, are typically uh, being under constant pressure to justify their existence, essentially, justify their budget. And they do that with data. And it's hard to show objective data around feelings, around user experience. Yeah, well, you have to allocate budgets to be able to show data about feelings it's a lot of and like, you have to have data to get budget process. approved yeah and then that, you have to have data just for the budget. chicken and the egg right it's like yeah. no one's going to give me budget unless i can come to them with a data-driven business case right so it's interesting well is this something i'm going to go back to plugging your stuff over here uh you have mm -hmm. a, a workshop coming up i do i do i have a workshop coming up and talk to us about um, that yeah so just the other one, actually. Oh, the other one. Did I? Jeez, oh, <laughs> no, Louise. No. That's my regular course. But I'll, I'll tell you about it without just, showing just it. Tell that me about okay. it, and I'll try to find yeah. it while you're talking here. So basically what happened is I've been starting with teaching localizers about UX. So I created a course, a UX course for localizers. And what I've been seeing is that a lot of those people coming to the course that were either linguists doing the actual translation or localization uh, managers in product companies, in digital product companies, they were talking about the lack of collaboration with LSPs, with agencies, okay. with translating agencies. Is that they, even if they had the UX knowledge, they had to really fight to get the collaboration they needed, the information they needed. These are to, translators. To transfer the messaging. You're talking uh, about both translators and localization managers from the okay. from the other side, from the product side, from okay. the buyer side. From the buyer side. Okay. And there's, and there's a lot of the times there's an agency in the middle, there's an LSP in the middle, but the LSP doesn't have that UX knowledge. Well, and LSPs so I are created... notorious, sorry to interrupt, but LSPs are no, notorious no for saying, you know, the, the whole thing LSPs do, they, they don't do any work. They manage a supply chain, right? Yeah. They, they receive projects from the client and they outsource those to freelancers or smaller LSPs or whatever. So the value that they're adding is the project management, the vendor management, the education of the client, yeah. the expertise, right? And, and, and it is work, it is hard. No, it is yeah. work, yeah, no disrespect. Yeah. Hey, I come from the LSP side, like mad respect to LSPs. Like I literally wrote a book about how they add value, right? So I'm not trying to throw shade at LSPs, but here I'll throw a little bit of shade, which is <laughs> that they are notorious. I'll say we, because I come from that side. So I'm criticizing myself instead of my colleagues, but it's like, we are notorious for agreeing to do things that perhaps we should admit that aren't our expertise because we don't actually have to deliver those. What we do is we create a supply chain to deliver those. And I've seen LSPs get in trouble because a client will come to them and want to talk about user experience or something else. But 
user experience is what we're talking about today. And the LSP says, yes, sure, we can do that. But then they quickly realize, oh, I don't know how to do this, right? So I think that's the audience that you're trying to reach to try to actually empower these people to be able to deliver on the the demands, the needs of their clients. On the promise too. And I think it is an issue because a lot of, if you talk to buyer side companies, if you talk to digital product companies, they're really angry usually with their LSPs or frustrated. There's not a lot of trust and they are sure they are being conned and they're being ripped off because they don't have a way to basically verify the quality of the, of the localized uh, content. And that's because when they talk to the LSP, when they come to this zoom or meeting or whatever, they can understand and they can feel that the person on the other side does not understand the work that they do. They don't speak the same language in terms of like the terminology that they're using. And when they try to, even sometimes when they try to have that person access their files, like a Figma file to see the content or transfer that content to their linguist, transfer those kind of context information, screenshots or whatever, um, they can see that there's no understanding from the person who's supposed to facilitate that. And they're, I think, rightfully frustrated because when you pay a lot of money for translation, then you have the right to expect that the person on the other side will understand what's expected of them and what they need to do to provide really good results. Right. And so that's kind of the, the background, I guess, for the, for the workshop that I've created, um, which is a workshop for LSPs, for agencies, for localization facilitators in general, to be able to, like you said, deliver on the premise, to be able to understand what their clients are expecting of them and asking of them, mm-hmm. and also what they need to do to really deliver good results for them. So, and deliver value. And I'll just read it here on screen for our podcast listeners. It says, once you finish this course, you will develop an understanding of UX and its importance, understand the challenges of UX writing for international audience, apply a strategic approach to UX localization projects, confidently accept and work on UX localization projects, know how to craft useful, enjoyable localized content, feel comfortable discussing copy choices with product teams, and know how to analyze and evaluate UX copy in any language. So very interesting. And this is available now. Yes, this is the, this is the UX writing course. So the yep. UX course, the language of UX course, which is a course for, uh, for agencies and for LSPs is available now and it's starting September 14th. Okay. And there are still seats open. So if you're interested, then definitely go and check it out because I'm not sure if it's going to open again in the near future, cause I'm opening the other UX writing course after that. And I do need to have time for it. Yeah, Actual sure. Work too. <laughs> yeah, you got you got to pay the bills in the meantime. You got to pay the bills. Get, get no, so definitely, done. definitely go have a look if you're if this feels like something that would help you. Very cool. All right, guys, you have it there. I'll try to put a link in the in the comments if when when I have a break here. Um, going back to our topic here, I, I wanted to talk about UX in regards to. We're talking about UX in regards to copy. We're talking about UX in regards to UI. What is the role of brand voice? Like you, you mentioned, you know, it depends it, when, when you're talking about like, let's define UX. It depends. It depends upon the mm-hmm. brand. It depends upon their values, their vision, all of that stuff. How, how does that change from brand to brand? And is there a certain level of standardization? Because I would imagine this is something that's very hard to speak and to instruct on because of that level of variability. How do you deal with that? So the, the, the main challenge of it when you talk about localization is that brand voice doesn't just defer based on the brand. It obviously does, but then it also defers based on the language and the culture because it's really affected by the users. And the way that you craft a brand voice is that you go, you research 
your market and you research the users and you talk to the company, you understand what they want, what they're trying to achieve, and then you craft the voice. And what it does is it basically guides the experience and frames it in a way that well, I like to I like to sometimes compare to to an actual person. So the brand is like a person, mm -hmm. and when you meet that person, you have to get some kind of impression, like just like you would with a person. So sometimes you meet someone and they are super friendly, super casual, very, very fun, and you come out of it feeling really, really happy. But maybe you're not going to trust them when you need kind of investment advice. Right. You're going to go to that friend of yours who's they, a little bit more serious. They might be really fun at a party, and, but... Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, you know, You're have, going to go to, to that person friends. who's maybe a little condescending, but I, they have very good advice on investments. Yeah. Um, and so that's brand voice, essentially, in a nutshell. Okay. It is, is making you feel like that person that you're coming to, that company that you're coming to, is the right company and the right solution for the specific need that you have now. Okay. And it can defer. Like you can have an insurance company that's super friendly and casual, like Lemonade Insurance, for example, and you can have one that's very serious and kind of uh, a little bit condescending maybe even sometimes because it makes you feel more safe because they reach, they are trying to target different client bases, different customer bases and different audiences. And how can that is, because when we're talking about, you know, different brand voice and different like personalities, so to speak, uh, how is that? Because this has always been a struggle for me it, when outsourcing such things to an LSP or to any agency outside. How can a brand, how can a company outsource the user experience of their customer base to an external agency and trust that it's going to be following their brand guidelines and really putting the foot forward that they want to put forward? Um, there's got to be an immense level of trust in order for that to happen, right? Yeah, trust. First of all, trust is definitely the key word that is missing here. And what often happens is that companies don't have a choice. Okay. Because yeah. they need for, to. They, yeah, they fair. need their their product localized. And someone from the top said, "We need this localized into ten languages and go make it, go like make it happen." And they don't have the resources to do it in house at the moment because they don't have enough staff or whatever. So they need to go to an LSP and then they go to the LSP, I guess, which their budget allows and also gives them the biggest amount of trust and they, yeah. the biggest amount of trust that they are going to actually deliver, like we said, on that promise yeah. and actually understand what it means to create user experiences and understand what it means to have a brand voice mm -hmm. and understand what it means to have localizers and linguists who are able to craft that brand voice. Mm -hmm. But that being said, if, you you do your you do your best obviously with what you have, uh, but that being said, uh, something that I feel that most companies don't do and really should because it can make a really big difference for them is create uh, brand guides and brand voice guides in different languages for different markets, and that on its own, creating those guidelines with a few examples of how the brand voice should sound in each of these languages with an expert of brand voice from that market, mm -hmm. which is obviously going to be expensive but not as expensive as having that person translate all your content. So creating those guidelines can make a huge difference because it can help the linguist on the other end. It's a document that's easy to send. Yeah. And then it can make the linguist on the other end really understand what kind of voice you're expecting to get at the end. And this is perfect that you're bringing into this because I see someone in chat, Daniel says, can you please explain how brand voices can change? in some locales and i think this is a really good question i would add to that and you touched upon it already but i would add to that what's the difference between what we're talking about here like with the brand voice 
for different locales and style guides that localization companies do. Because style guides are a known entity. Like people, you know, LSPs yeah. know what a style guide is. Um, what's the gap between style guides and, say, brand voice guides? So if you remember at the beginning, we talked about how experiences are not just changing the currencies. They're not just changing the days. They're not just changing the kind of the way things look and the the maybe fonts or whatever. Experiences are feelings. And so that's basically the different style guides. If you look at style guides, most often they have all of these instructions mm -hmm. on these are the punctuation marks you should use. These are the date formats you should use. These are the currency formats. Please use these terms for these kind of different contexts and they're helpful. It is important to have those, but they don't really describe the, the voice. They don't describe the brand. Yeah. And so they're only part of the context that the linguists need to really create a, a localized user experience that is both loyal to the original brand, but also valuable and effective yeah. in, their, in their target audience. Um, and that leads me to the other question, which is brand voices change uh, across locales because cultures are different. Sure. And brand voices, they heavily depend on cultures. So if we talked about the person who's trustworthy, right? Yeah. And I told you, maybe you're not going to go to that friend for investment advice. So there are cultures like in what? Israel, for example, that maybe I'm not going to go to that really kind of formal, serious friend for investment advice because we're a very, very casual culture. Yep. And then there are cultures like maybe in Japan that not only are you going to go to that serious friend, if that person maybe speaks to you, and I'm not talking about a friend here, but maybe like a bank teller. And if that person speaks to you using the wrong level of the wrong honorifics, the wrong level of formality, then you're going to say, oh, I don't want to be a customer of this bank because I don't trust them. Right. And because so they're not acting professional. Companies. Exactly. Yeah. But when we, when we talk about things like trust, when we talk about things like professional, what is trust? Right. What is oh. professional? Right. These are really this is what you don't think of unless you're in that world. Right. Which which you live, eat, breathe and sleep in. Right. Is the concept of trust is very different across different cultures. Right. And I think that's what a lot of people don't understand. Yeah. And also, I think even the level of trust that is required differs across cultures. Like there's a very classic example of uh, there's a McDonald's website. Okay. And in the U.S., they have really big pictures of the of the food, and they don't have a list of ingredients on the website. So you have to click in. Maybe you can see the list of ingredients inside, inside kind of the product page or the dish page, or I don't know what it's called. But then if you go to the same website and it's in Japan, you have all the ingredients listed very, very clearly, and the images are much smaller because people need that level of trust. They need all that information to be able to say, oh, I want to buy from this brand. I want to buy this this." Uh, food to eat. And then in the US, there's actually a level of, I actually want to see how it looks like. And yeah. that makes me want to buy it more than knowing what's inside. And it's like, and also another thing that we found interesting in our research is there's big difference in like the weight people put behind user reviews, for example. And then you touched upon yeah. this, like, who do people go to for advice? You know, some cultures go to um, the internet, some people go to their family and friends, all their aunties and uncles. Some people go to trusted sources, news, you know, all of these different things. And if you're not aware of those different things, you might be making wrong assumptions and investing in the wrong areas when it comes to designing your stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that does impact the brand voice too. Yeah. And I want to 
just really quickly, Nimsy has some research that's been out for a while. Um, it's called Project Underwear, is what we called it. Um, there's a whole story behind it. I'm not going to get into it right now. <laughs> but Project Underwear, and it looks at a bunch of these different components across different cultures on, you know, like how, how important is packaging across cultures? Mm-hmm. You know, some co- cultures don't care if the product arrives in a brown paper bag. But some cultures want it, you know, really crisp packaging, you know. Um, and that's just one example. A bunch of different stuff. I, I'll put a link here in LinkedIn. You guys can go check that out a- afterwards um, as well. Just one resource I was thinking of. Speaking of resources, though, you have another course coming up. I'm trying to s- put our plugs throughout the p- program so we don't overwhelm people in the beginning. You have another course coming up. Tell us about that. So I do have, what I do is I do the UX writing course that is meant for localizers and that's linguists and localization managers who feel like they they need that UX writing knowledge and the knowledge of how to actually create UX content to do their job better. And so that course has had already three session, three um, runs of it, I guess. There are nine lessons inside. And that opens again around for enrollment around December and it's going to be around January. Yeah, that's the page, but it's not open for enrollments yep. at the moment. But I am going to open it around December at the end of the year so, so, so that, that people can kind some, of utilize was, their budgets. Yeah, sorry. Someone was asking in chat where, where they can get a schedule. So I, I put the link into the comments on LinkedIn. So you should be able to follow a link. So that's that course. And that's the next one. Course. And the next one is the workshop for LSP. It's that's happening for September 14th. And that is going to be a three-session course. And then another one-on-one meeting where we work on our own projects. And those are the courses that are upcoming, but I'm also working on a localization course for product companies, which I feel is a very, it's something that I've been asked about a lot Okay. because product companies, they're missing their knowledge on the other end. And what actually happened is when I uh, started advertising the UX writing course, a lot of product companies signed up being confused that they yeah. thought this was a localization course. And I had to turn them down and say, I'm sorry, it's not for you. It's not what you're looking for, but I am working on it. And for now, if, uh, if uh, product companies want to learn about localization, of course, there's a lot of resources online, but also there's uh, the podcast that is just starting out. It's called the Localization Process Pod. And that is a podcast where I actually talk to different, um, different product companies, different localization managers in product companies and learn with them or from them about the processes that they use and how they optimize their products and their processes for localization. And in an attempt to kind of share the knowledge with a lot of different people, share the knowledge inside the industry. Like you said, it's a lot about community community building, a lot about bringing all those different people to the same table to talk. And that's kind of an attempt at that, to have that knowledge available for everybody. And eventually there'll be a course, but I'm working on it. Not ready yet. Eventually. Lots of good resources. I feel like if... Dear viewers, people that are joining us live today, if nothing else, if you get nothing from this podcast, this episode today, at least you're walking away with a lot of good resources, recommendations. <laughs> there's a lot of good information out there. Um, a lot, there is, really is. A lot of good information on user experience, a lot on the web. Less information about localization because it's a niche industry. This is why we founded Nimsy because there was a gap, right? Um, we recognized a gap anyways. So there's less information. There's more than there used to be. Um, but there's still information out there. And right now, I think I love the niche that you're filling here, which is providing information about the intersection. 
between those two because there's so many misconceptions out there. Speaking of misconceptions, one thing I, I was looking forward to asking your thoughts on, well, let's start with machine translation and user experience. Like, is there a place for machine translation while still having a user-centric localization program, or is it a no-go? I was just having this conversation with the client this morning. So, like a lot of things that I, I well, it depends. I think that's my favorite answer. A, a consultant's favorite answer is <laughs> it depends. Consultants it depends. and lawyers, but it does. right? Yeah, but it does. It does depend because, well, first of all, if you're localizing into Spanish or French, maybe you can start actually utilizing machine translation in UX content now and actually get good results because these are languages that have a lot of resources and machine translation can give generally just good results on that. Uh, but still, obviously, nothing that can let you just use machine translation to create the content and stop at that. You still oh, have sure. to do heavy editing and that heavy editing still has to happen in the same environment that you want manual human localization to happen, which is context rich with screenshots, with uh, some kind of QA in the environment, in the localized product, ideally. Yeah. And it's not something that happens a lot or all the time, but it does happen and it should happen. And it should also happen if you're using machine translation. Mm -hmm. If you are localizing into one of the languages that still doesn't have a lot of resources, like Hebrew or like uh, any of the African languages, that have very, very low resources for AI for machine translation, then most likely you're just adding uh, work for yourself right. and, because you still would have to do heavy, heavy um, post editing. And that is not just not going to generate best, best results or even passable results for user experience. And that is different from maybe other types of content where you maybe can get away with machine translated content and then PE right. in those languages like marketing content or help center content because it's long form. So you do have a lot of context built into the content and then machine translation can generate passable results and then yeah. you have to do some editing, but it's, it's okay and it's readable and it's understandable. So it does the work, it, it kind of does what it's meant to do. Yeah. Right, a user can read that and understand what they need to do. If it's a help center article, they understand the instructions. Yeah, it's about but intent, then, right? It's like yeah. when we're talking about user experience, user experience, there's overlap between, and this is one thing that we talk at Nimsy a lot to our clients about is helping them understand the inner, the overlap between user experience and language quality specifically. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've, written some stuff and published some stuff about language quality, how <clears throat> essentially, <clears throat> I mean, if I want to say it in a controversial way, I say stuff like Qu quality is LQA is dead, right? It's not dead. There's always going to be a place for LQA, right? But what, and that's how people, that's what people hear when they hear me talk about quality. That's not what I mean. What I mean is LQA is no longer enough because it's looking at static, objective quality measurements because that's how what it was designed to do and that's what we've been able to do what it's not doing typically is taking into account the end user experience and yeah. you know I, I say stuff like i don't care if the quality sucks if the lqa scores are all failing if the user walks away with a good experience then i've accomplished my mission now Will they walk away with a good experience if the quality sucks? Yeah, probably not. But those two are correlated, but not necessarily like causational. You know what I'm saying? One doesn't necessarily lead to the other. Because like if we're talking about help content, like you said, 
if I'm reading some help content online, I need to be able to understand it. It needs to be factually accurate. And I don't care if it's, you know, a comma is not in the right place or if a word's misspelled here or there. Am I making sense? Yeah. Well, it doesn't have to be fun, right? It doesn't have to generate have to any fun. kind of emotion. Exactly. The, the, the goal is different. Yeah. Well, well Yeah, put. absolutely. I don't know if LQA is really dead as much as it's, it's not shifting dead. very it's not dramatically. Dead. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's just, it's reborn maybe in a, it's reborn. In a different kind of, yeah. It's evolving. Reborn. It's going through a that's, metamorphosis. That's optimistic. Yeah. Yes, I like that. I love how <laughs> my guest always finds optimistic, positive ways to rephrase <laughs> yeah. my cynical old man on his front porch comments that I make. Well, speaking of, you know, moving forward and shifting the way that we do things. We talked about MT. You know, what's coming next is what's the deal with AI, generative AI, um, all of this, you know, this chat GPT, all, all of this stuff, large language models. How's, how's that affecting user experience? Like we have a pretty good idea here at Nimsy. We published quite a bit on it. If you guys want to go check it out, um, how it's affecting the localization or how we predict it will, but, uh, what effect in the user experience um, field is that having? So first of all, I think this is a fascinating question because I'm I'm I, I'm going to answer your question, but then if you ask me in one month, my answer is likely going to be different. Same. Because the evolution yeah. is just exponential. But it's, that's it's, why I said we have published stuff where we think it's going right. Yeah. Like we might publish stuff retracting that a month from now because it's going quick. This it's is going a quick. quick. And it's going to go technology. quicker. Yeah. It's yeah. going to get quicker and quicker. It's accelerating. It's not just going quick. It's accelerating. Yeah. And so what I'm going to say about generative AI in general is that generative AI, just like its name, is meant to generate content. And it's not like everybody knows, I think, already. It's not as factually accurate. It's not as accurate, period. And so it means it's not ideal for translation, but it also means that it's optimally really ideal for user experiences because instead of translating content, you can use the source content as instructions to generate better kind of more natural content. But this in is all what scares a lot of localizers because it's essentially oh, taking away the need for localization. Like why would I, if I'm, if I'm using generative AI to create a marketing campaign in English, why would I then pay to have that generated marketing campaign translated into French and Spanish when I could just tell the machine to do it in three languages for me and, and make it culturally relevant to each of those languages, right? So it's not the exact same campaign. This is kind of where yeah. my, my, you know, pessimistic brain goes. No. So I think, I think it's, it's going to be kind of irresponsible for companies to just generate a marketing campaign and just have it out there without anyone looking at it first, because it can lead to really I mean, embarrassing it, and hilarious issues. Irresponsibility hasn't stopped Silicon Valley before. No, it hasn't. So there's no, going to be hasn't. somebody out there making the mistakes that we can all laugh at. I just don't know who yeah, it is. Yeah, and there's, there's definitely going to be less work for localizers with generative AI starting to be used in translation. I think... and. I, it's happening already. You know, if you're looking, even if you're looking at the different kind of translator groups, you see people saying what's going on. There's not enough work. Agencies have stopped calling. Clients have stopped calling. And uh, yeah, what but is to be fair, fair and balanced here. Translators have been saying that for 20 years, 
right? There's all there's always well, and, and something. maybe it's been happening for twenty years. Maybe it has. Maybe it's been happening. Maybe it has. And also, it doesn't mean that there's not going to be work for translators or not going to be work for localizers. It just means there's going to be work for less translators and less localizers. So make yourself the most attractive translator slash localizer in your in your language, in yep. your niche, in your wherever you're working. And then you're still going to be working and you're still going to be asked to do things because companies are not going to generate a marketing campaign in German and just put it out there. It's it's just not going to work for them. Not long term, no. Somebody's going to have to look at those campaigns and say, oh, this needs to be shifted a little bit. Or this works and this doesn't. Because sometimes even the strategy is is something that needs to be changed. Yeah. yeah it, you know, there's this example of, uh, sorry, I'm cutting you off. No, please. I like examples. So there's this, yeah. There's this example of an Oldie campaign that, you know, Oldie, they have this, they're, they're an oat uh, milk brand. Oh, but, they oh have yeah. This really, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. They, they have this really kind of irreverent, uh, kind of funny ads, very I know uh, we, stream of consciousness. We, we did an RFP for them, really long copy. I think. At Nim, I don't know if that was Nimsy or a past life, but yeah, so uh, yeah, Oatly, love the brand. Yeah. Very strong brand but it's, voice. It's, yeah, and it's and exactly, very strong brand voice, and it's fun, and it's really fresh, and people have been enjoying it. And yeah. then they went and they did this marketing uh, campaign. They put huge ads all over the um, U-Bahn, I think it's called the, yep. the Metro kind of uh, underground stations in, uh, in Berlin, people really hated it. And, and they, they started commenting about how they're destroying the architecture and they're destroying the vibe of the station. And this is like classical station decor, I don't know. Uh, and, and they should really take off the ads and Oli had to really kind of redeal the advertisements. And I don't know if they actually went through and did it, but that's what they claim they're going to do. They're going to redesign the advertisements so that they sort of fit into the decor of the underground stations in Berlin. Interesting. And and this is something, you know, you can't do that with AI, right? You have to have a native cultural expert person look at the ads and say, oh, this is not going to work because people are going to be angry because they have very, very strong sentimental connections with the metro decor in Berlin. Yeah. Who knew, you know? Yeah, so I, I, think I think it's a, a good example. Yeah, it's a great example. And I, I think in a way... Um, there's two sides to this coin for those of us in, in the word industry, dealing with words, right? Languages is that there's with this large language models and generative AI are, they're cutting at the core of what we do, which is language, which is words, which is communication, right? So in a way, this is a real, I hate to use the word threat, but a real impact, on what we do and how not so much what what we do but how we do it perhaps as an industry so in a way you got that on one side but on the other side we still work in an industry that at the end of the day is about humans facilitating human to human conversation right and that human element is very hard to take out of what we do and i say we when i'm talking about localization and i'm talking about user experience because we're dealing mm -hmm. with humans, we're dealing with communication, we're dealing with emotions and feelings, right? So in, a, in a, another way, while it is threatening our industry, to use a scary word, it's also, I think, comforting to know that we work in an industry where humans are going to be very, very hard to replace. There's plenty of industries out there where we humans are not so hard to replace. And I think we're yeah. going to start seeing that happening 
before. Now, the way that we sh- the way that we do our work, how we do our work, what we do, I think is going to change, right? Just like machine translation, just like TMS is just like all, all of this, just like the internet changed the way we do work, right? Um, I think there's still going to be jobs for translators, but new skill sets are going to need to be developed by the translators that want to stay relevant. And there's going to be new positions that open up um, that we haven't even heard of before. Yeah, my, absolutely. My, my partner absolutely. Renato likes to say in five to 10 years from now, your biggest clients are going to be companies that don't exist yet. Right. And he likes to point to like, look at Facebook, you know, maybe it's not five to 10 years, maybe it's 10 to 20, but you know, Facebook yeah, didn't look exist at 20 AI. years ago. Yeah. Look at open AI. For example, you know, in, any of these companies that are spending millions of dollars a year, the biggest clients out there, they didn't exist 10 years ago. So what are going to be the new companies in 10 years? Yeah, it's a great question. And also, I think, uh, I'm not sure if this is true, but this is something that I've been feeling is that this shift in the way that we work and the work that's expected of us is also going to dramatically increase the gap between translation in general and UX localization. How so? Because because you are going to have to be that person looking at the content, right? And saying, yes, this is culturally appropriate or not culturally appropriate, but the level of knowledge that you are going to need to be able to do that for UX, the level of knowledge in UX and understanding of how user experiences work and what's required of them is going to be it's going to be a must because if you're just doing QA, if you're just looking at the experience and saying, yes, this is a good experience in German or yes, this is a good experience in Japanese, you need to understand what a good experience is. Yeah. Your role is not just to be able to translate words from one language to the other or say, yes, this is grammatically accurate. You're not going to need yep. to do all those things anymore because AI can do that for you. And then the only thing that you're going to be needing to do is look at that experience and say, yes, it's a good experience in my country, or even just look at the research or even perform the research. Yeah. So that work is going to be dramatically more dramatically different than the work that maybe, uh, like you said, a help center translator or a medical translator does, which is very different. So I completely agree, by the way. Um, if I were a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, 17-year-old high school graduate who had a dream of, God help me, going into the localization industry today, where would you suggest, what, what, would I, what should I study? What, where should I focus my, my time? So localization in general or UX specific localization? Open question. That's kind of what I'm saying because I, I yeah. think our thesis is kind of they're, they're merging to a point where they, they weren't 10 years ago. All right. So, but let's say I, you know, like a lot of us came into this industry, a lot of us came into this industry as translators. I did not. Right. Yeah. But what I did have was a passion for languages and a passion for culture. And I don't think Mm -hmm. that's a unique, that's not unique to me. There's plenty of people out there that just love language and they love culture and they love travel and they love all of those hippy dippy things. And that's what brought me into this industry. Right. So if I was a hippy dippy 17 year old who loved languages, what should I do? Should I try to become a translator? Should I study neuro linguistics? Should I study user experience? Geopolitics? (laughs) Right. Well, you should probably study something that does not exist yet, unfortunately. Fair. That's going to be. Threw that back at me. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Unfortunately. So what I would do is if I were very new to this, I would just start reading about different kind of kinds of translation maybe and see what is more interesting to me. Because like you said, there is going to be some level of work, I think in most of those industries. And 
if you're not passionate about UX, there's no reason to start learning UX, even if it is something that is definitely going to have localizers still working in some kind of capacity in the future. Uh, if you're passionate about video content, maybe you should learn subtitling. If you're passionate about gaming, maybe you should learn game localization, which is also a really big industry and something that is really growing now. So I think it really differs in, in what you like to do and what you enjoy doing and what you find fascinating. And yes, that could also be, like you said, neurolinguistic. It, it could also be, um, I don't know, I, I studied, I did a semester of anthropology, which I think was fascinating. And right. it's definitely something that I think would be useful for localizers to learn, uh, probably in an industry. And so it does depend on, like you said, it depends. It depends on it who depends. you are. It depends. It yeah, depends. I, I, you know, it's good advice though. Because what you're saying essentially is do what you love and do figure and figure it out, right? Which, yeah. because otherwise we become paralyzed by fear of, oh, I don't want to go into this industry. It, you know, there's translators that are leaving the industry right now because they're convinced that they won't have jobs in five years, right? So I don't blame them. I, and also I don't if you don't... blame them either, really. I mean, I think yeah. it's sad, um, but... Anyways, what were you going to say? Well, no, first of all, if you have a family to support and you need to ensure that you have a job in 10 years, then yes, maybe maybe if you go and do something else and you choose to be an engineer, then, then that's you do you, and that's okay. Yep. Um, but but also, I, I feel like you said, do, do what you love. And when you do something that you really enjoy and you really love, I feel that you do better work. True. And you provide better services. If you're a, a service provider, if you're a freelancer, then it, it shows, right? It, it shines out of the conversations that you have with your clients and people feel that and they want to work with you more because they say this person has found their calling. And I definitely, if you if you hire someone, you want to work with the person who found their calling and not that person who's kind of like grudgingly doing this because it pays the bills. True. And so a good start is to do what you love and then, you know, start learning from that, start optimizing from that, start learning the market and, and anything else that you need to do. But but start with that. Start with doing what you want to do. Excellent advice, Michal. I um, you know, I'm watching the clock here. We're coming up on the time when I need to start playing that outro music. But any closing thoughts? Um, questions I forgot to ask. Words of wisdom. Um, for me, I don't know. I really enjoy this. So first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, I did. I do say I haven't. I wasn't able to see any of the questions that people asked. So I'm going to go back to the recording later and kind of see what I, not because of you, you're okay. It's just, it was small. Oh, it's, it it, was is, it is because of me, because I'm supposed to be monitoring. I didn't, I've been doing my best to respond to them in chat because some of them are like, where's the recording going to be and stuff like that. So I just respond to them. Um, we got some, here, I'll pull them up here. Why don't I do that? Um, oh, Michal, no, no, Michal, you're Michal. Um, Michael, <laughs> Michael Asquith, he was on the program a few weeks ago, I want to say. And I think I feel like we talked about a lot of these same things. He has some interesting insights. Says branded mm -hmm. personalization must be incorporated into global UX to be effective and overlapping KPIs with localization based on measured impact and success. And yes, yes. I agree with you, yes. Michael, in a perfect Research. world. Right. Research the localized experience. Please do. <laughs> Nobody does, though, but yeah. they well, really should. We do at NIMSY. Like, this is something we run very large-scale projects, uh, helping them understand, you know, what is what is the impact of localization on user experience. And there's a whole methodology yeah. that I'm not going to get into. So it's like we do do that, but I can also forgive clients that don't have the budget for that. 
because it's it's in depth, right? And and you know, like when it comes to user experience, you can go as deep as you want to go. You know, what's your budget? Also, when it comes to research, but I think and even also the when small it comes to kind of easy easy research, like if you A/B test in English, A/B test in all languages, and see sometimes uh, a button well, is going to perform better, but it's going to be different. And, yeah, and there's low hanging people, fruit like that. Don't. Yeah, like yeah. A/B testing, low hanging fruit. Most systems that people are using, um, publishing or um, distribution systems, most most things nowadays have built in A/B testing functionality, right? Yeah. And I feel like that's an example of something that's low hanging fruit that you should definitely be doing, right? You don't, and this is what I tell people. And like you say, research. How deep do you want to go? Like Nimsy is a research company, so when people come and say, I want, um, you know, a brand perception study on my organization with such and such samples and whatever. It's like, all right, how much you want to spend? Right. I mean, I say it a little more tactfully than that on a sales call. And it's not because I'm trying to get money from you. It's because I can do a very small scale one. Or I can do a very large scale one. You can always go deeper. You can do automated surveys or you can do in-person focus groups, right? With real-time interpretation and, yeah. you know, the cost can keep coming up. So, yeah, it's a, it's a whole rabbit hole to go down. Yeah, hopefully with uh, with tech, it's going to, I don't know, maybe it's going to make research more cost-effective. You can do transcription sometimes in two different languages now automatically. So maybe that helps. But try, try and get creative and get data. Exactly. Data is good. Not you, but like product companies. There, there was a question here that I, I feel we addressed. Can you please explain how brand voices can change in some locales? That's why yes, I, I asked that. you about that. And yeah, good conversation in the chat. Um, good conversation with you, Michal. Thank you so much. And welcome <laughs> to the exciting and fun world of localization industry podcasting. <laughs> Thank you. I look forward to subscribing. Um, everyone. So far, it's really fun. It really has been. It is a lot of fun. So everyone yeah. go follow Michal on LinkedIn. If you can, you should be able to link to her right from the LinkedIn page, LinkedIn Live. And you'll be one of the first people to know when she when she comes out with new stuff. So with that, I'm going to take us out. Thank you so much, Michal. Um, Thank you, Tucker. This has been really fun. Yes, ma'am. All right. Ladies, gentlemen, we are out of time for today. I appreciate Michal for joining me live. I appreciate all my colleagues here at NMC Insights doing all the hard work. I appreciate everyone in our industry who responds to our surveys and schedules time with us so we can include you in our industry research. And lastly, I appreciate you, the audience, everyone who's joined us live today, all of the lively conversation in the chat. And I look forward to next time. Cheers. Cheers.